Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. On October 8, 1923, Jack Trice, the first black student athlete at what became Iowa State University, died from injuries sustained on the football field. The night before the game, he wrote this. October 5th, 1923. To whom it may concern. My thoughts just before the first real college game of my life. The honor of my race, family, and self are at stake. Everyone is expecting me to do big things. I will. My whole body and soul are to be thrown recklessly about on the field tomorrow. Every time the ball is snapped, we'll be trying to do more than my part. On all defensive plays, I must break through the opponent's line and stop the play in their territory. Beware of mass interference. Fight low with your eyes open and toward the play. Roll block the interference. Watch out for cross bucks and reverse end runs. Be on your toes every minute if you expect to make good. Jack. That is the voice of George Trice, a relative of Jack's and the founder of the Trice Legacy Foundation. I'll talk with him later this hour, but we're going to start with the life story of Jack Trice. All this year, Iowa State University has been commemorating the centennial of his death and honoring his legacy. Trice was the first black student athlete at what was then Iowa State College. He is also the first and still only black man to have a major university stadium named after him. And getting his name on the stadium was the result of a 20-plus year campaign led by students who were repeatedly rebuffed by ISU's administration and the Board of Regents. Last December, I spoke with Dr. Jonathan Gelber, author of The Idealist, Jack Trice and the Battle for a Forgotten Football Legacy. Gelber is an orthopedic surgeon and author. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, thank you so much for being here. And you uh, don't have a long history with the state of Iowa. I'm curious, how did this story come to your attention? Well, I came across Jack's story when I was researching a previous book that I had. I had written a book about how sports injuries and tragedies affected society as a whole. And I came across Jack's story and the tragedy of his untimely death. And while it didn't fit into that book, I thought that the fact that he not only broke racial barriers as the first African-American athlete at Iowa State, but not that also his letter that he had written the night before he unfortunately would die from tragic injuries, that letter reached out across generations and actually inspired students in the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s to have the stadium named after Jack. So it was not only Jack's life as a, a barrier breaker, but also the second phase of that story was the inspiration of the students to name the stadium after Jack. So I thought it was a very interesting arc that not only was his life important, but even the letter that he wrote reached across generations. Um, the letter that Jack Trice wrote it feels like after reading your book, it's that letter that made the difference between him being forgotten and him being remembered. Do you feel that's true? Yeah, I think that is the the inspiration because, yeah, he unfortunately, he was remembered uh, in the time that he lived. I mean, they, they had a funeral for him. They stopped classes. 
And that letter was memorialized on a plaque inside the old Iowa State Gymnasium. So the students at that time, they, they wanted to honor him. They thought he deserved something uh, memorializing him, memorializing who he was and what he did. But it did get forgotten. And in fact, it was the rediscovery of that plaque by an academic tutor and subsequently an English class looking into who Jack Trice was, was what inspired the movement. So without that letter, we may not have known about him because that plaque on the wall wouldn't have existed. So I think it is that letter which has inspired people. And it inspires people in many different ways. And most notably, it's, it's African-Americans who play sports who realize that there's more than just their honor at stake on the field. Like Jack said, it is the race, his family and his self in that order whose honor is at stake on that field. And so athletic directors who know Jack's story also have felt that way. Coaches and NFL football have felt that way. And so I think it speaks to a lot of people who have similar circumstances than Jack. And it is a hundred years later and still they can relate to what Jack was feeling at that time. We will talk more about the student movement a little later on in the show, but you obviously did an incredible amount of research to dig deep into Jack Trice's family and his family history. All four of his grandparents were born into slavery, and Jack's father was really a remarkable man. Tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, I mean, Jack's story is really the story of the origins of African Americans after the Civil War. So his his grandparents were slaves, um, and they, his dad was born right around the time of emancipation. And so his, his father grew up and became a Buffalo soldier. And as a Buffalo soldier, he fought you know, for his country. It was a country that had enslaved his parents. Right, out and yet west. he still wanted to support the folks, you know, the, the country itself, the idea of America. So he became a Buffalo soldier. And after that, he left and he had met a man who was creating a small town in Hiram, Ohio, and it was part of a college there. It was going to be a, a religious school and university. And so he moved to the small town in Ohio where they were likely the only people of color there. There was maybe one other immigrant, but Jack it was the only young black boy in the school. And so even at an early age, you know, his father was instilling on him the importance of hard work and, and living this life as, as a different person, as the only black face in the crowd. Well, and, and Jack's father was clearly driven to better himself and to take advantage of some of the opportunities that freedom allowed him. He had never been to school, and he went to school, grade school, as an adult. Yeah, it's, it's a very funny story because, yeah, everybody in town knew him. He would walk children to school, to church. He eventually bought his own farm and so he was a hard worker. He was a community member. Um, and as you mentioned, he would actually go to grade school so he could learn to read. And he would play recess with the school kids. He would reach out his arms and the little kids would use his arms as swings. So it's quite an interesting story when you think about his father alone, let alone what Jack did. Yeah, which I, it just incredibly brave uh, is is what I think of when I think about an adult man doing what he did to try to, to learn as much as he could. But unfortunately, he didn't live long. No, he did. He died of, of kidney disease, which is predominant in African-American communities, unfortunately. And so his father died at an early age. And that was one of the reasons his mother, who was trying to raise Jack on her own and working in a local factory, decided to send him 
to live with his cousins in a larger African-American community in Cleveland. And so that's how Jack ended up in Cleveland, where he played high school football and became a high school football star. And it was his coach and his teammates, his best friend, who went to Iowa State, and he followed them to play football. So had Jack not gone to Cleveland, he probably wouldn't have played football and wouldn't have ended up in Iowa. Right. Well, and so going to Cleveland to be part of a larger African-American community, uh, he was, although he was still the only black athlete on his high school team. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, there was one other boy of color um, on his second year, but the first year, Jack was the only African-American. And there were still very few African-Americans in the school. It was a technical university, um, and it was a very well-known school. But even among that school in Cleveland, there were not many African-Americans. So Jack was known for his smile. They used to say in his high school yearbook that his smile and his tackle comforted everybody because they knew <laughs> what he would do on the field. But also, he always had a smile on his face. He always you know, had a smile, even as a small child. And so it was that smile that I think helped him bridge that gap between being a person of color and those around him. Although the school at that time was filled with many immigrants, um, Jewish people, Irish people. So there was still that connection uh, of that community. That was who Cleveland was at that time. And Jack's high school football team, and of course, you know, here we are talking about the um, the early 1920s. They This was a, a time of growth for football in the country. It was a brutal, brutal sport with not a lot of padding and not a lot of head protection back then. But his high school football team was a juggernaut. Yeah, there's an interesting story that his high school football team played for the national high school championship. So they were they were so good that they actually played a team um, in well, the state of Washington for the national football high school championship. And what's important about that story as well is football was was huge in that blue collar town where where he played. But yet even there, there was no no one of color playing football. And so when Jack went there, he was honored by people of color. They had a special banquet for him because he wasn't going to the banquet with the other white kids. And right. Because of segregation. Coaches. Yeah, there was a lot. There was still segregation going on. And there was, you know, this was a town, though, that had a black, strong black community. Um, and so they honored Jack. They had a little banquet in his honor. And then the next day during the game, uh, a little boy, this is recorded by a newspaper reporter who was at the time, a little boy ran over to Jack at halftime and, and threw him a piece of candy. And they said they could see a tear in Jack's eye. This little boy saw himself in Jack. We talk about representation now on TV and film, but there was no representation really of black athletes on the field. And so this boy was able to see himself playing football, saw something about Jack that inspired him, and he just wanted to give him that little piece of candy. And so even in high school, Jack understood at that point he was already representing more than just himself on that field. And that national high school um, championship, it, it was kind of a, a title that was in flux, even though the whole event was kind of in flux. But his senior year, they were also an extraordinary team. They could have played in something like a championship game, but he would have had to go to Texas to do it. And he was not invited to, to be a part of that. And, and his entire team said, if Jack can't go, we're not going, which seems like a really extraordinary moment. Yeah, they had the opportunity to go to Texas to also play for, for a national title. 
And because of the rules at that time, the black kids did not play with the white kids. They had a separate league. And so, yeah, Jack would not have been allowed to play, not have been allowed on the field. And in fact, there was some some talks, newspaper column writers were using terms that sort of evoked lynching yeah. and hanging and all these, you know, really derogatory and scary terms. And, and so Jack's team, they voted, they decided, well, we could all decide, say, who's going to go? Should we play for this national championship? We lost the year before, you know, maybe we can win this year. And they voted not to go to Texas because they didn't want to insult Jack by going to Texas and having him not play. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We are talking about the life and legacy of Jack Trice this hour. Everyone in Iowa has heard his name. The stadium at Iowa State University is Jack Trice Stadium. He was the first black athlete to play for what was then Iowa State College. And in 1923, during what he called the first real college football game of his life, he was wounded on the field. He died of those injuries. The night before that game, he wrote an extraordinary letter, and part of it said, The honor of my race, family, and self are at stake. Everyone is expecting me to do big things. I will. That letter has inspired so many over the years, and it also tells us a little bit about who this man was. For the last year, Iowa State University has been honoring the life and legacy of Jack Trice. That commemoration culminates this week with a number of events, including the Jack Trice Legacy Game on Saturday. And on Sunday, the 100th anniversary of Trice's death, there will be a closing ceremony at noon on Central Campus where Trice's posthumous degree will be awarded to family members. Right now, we're listening back to my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Gelber. He is the author of The Idealist, Jack Trice and the Battle for a Forgotten Football Legacy. And we are going to talk about the movement that finally, after almost 25 years of trying, resulted in the stadium at Iowa State University being named for Jack Trice in a few minutes. But let's talk a little bit about his career at Iowa State. He had this extraordinary high school career. A black man growing up in Ohio, going to college was not a given, but he wanted to go to college. And he also fell in love and got married right before he was going to start college. How did he wind up at Iowa State University? So, yeah, Jack had intentions of going to university. So he actually was going to go to Case Western in Cleveland. And he wanted to do something in agriculture. He had known about George Washington Carver and Carver's great success and legacy in teaching Southern black farmers how to grow crops. And, and, and of course, George was Washington set. Carver was the first black student to attend Iowa State University. Yes. And not only was that he a student, he was an athletic trainer. So he had a connection to sports and football as well. And Jack's coach also was not necessarily going to continue coaching. And then all of a sudden, he was offered a job at Iowa State. And part of the the job was that he was not only going to coach Iowa State, 
a football team, but he was going to bring star players with him because they had known that these students at East Tech were some of the best in the nation. So his best friend and his brother were on the team, and they were going to go to Notre Dame and play for Newt Rockney, who's also a Hall of Fame football legend. And he got those two to come with him to Iowa State. And with those two on board, he tried to get a third person, and he unfortunately wanted to stay locally, but the fourth person was Jack. And so the coach brought these players over to Iowa State with him to Ames. So they all left the big metropolitan Cleveland together to move to the small town of Ames, Iowa. And, of course, even though he was invited to play football at Iowa State, things were different then. That didn't mean that he was on a full-ride scholarship or something like that. He still had to pay for his education. And, in fact, his mother we believe, mortgaged her house to pay for his college education, right? Yeah, there's a lot of parallels um, when you think about, you know, Jack's life, you know, almost 100 years ago. So he he was raised by a single mom. His father died when he was young. He wanted to attend college. Um, and so he saw attending college as a way of, of advancing his ability to help others. And, and football provided that avenue for him. So, it's you know, a lot of students today see football as a way to get an education. Yeah. And so that allowed him to go to Iowa State. But as you mentioned, there were no football scholarships at the time. And so he had to work. So he had two jobs, it sounds like, um, mostly maintenance and janitorial work. Um, one at the Masonic building where he lived. So he, as a person of color, could not live on campus. So many of the students lived in downtown Ames in the small spaces above all the storefronts. But there was always a second floor used for offices and maybe his physician or dentist's office. Many of them turned them into to houses for students of color. And so Jack found a room in the, the Mason building. And so he worked there and he also worked at the school at the school gym he had his own key to the gym and sometimes he would sneak in at night and go swimming and maybe bring his girlfriend for for a late night dip so you know he was he was a young kid and it's, it's all these things that you read about and you think this is the 1920s and this could happen today and it's very interesting just to hear jack's story as a person and see how many connections there are to people today over 100 years later a lot, and I'm I'm a graduate of Iowa State University, and a lot of us celebrate the fact that George Washington Carver was the first black student and, and that we have the stadium named for Jack Trice and celebrate some of the progressive things about our legacy. But I think it's important, and you do make it very clear, life was really hard for people of color in Ames, Iowa in the 1920s. Yeah, I mean, even then, you know, there were there were segregations. Um, it, there was a lot of unwritten rules about where you could eat. Um, and sometimes Jack would be invited to go with his teammates to, to have dinner or something. And, and he knew that it would just be an awkward situation if he went. So he would often decline them and, and go eat by himself, you know, at, at a different diner late at night. And there are other students there, too, who, you know, experienced many of these things. And he actually, in his second year, he was able to join a black fraternity, the first black fraternity at Iowa State. And it was many members of that fraternity that went on to do big things like become presidents of universities, found the American Bar Association. So I think Jack was able to find people similar to him and experience what it was to be a black man in Ames and at a university by joining the black fraternity in his sophomore year. And, of course, the Greek system at Iowa State University was growing then, but the black fraternity and the black sorority could not have a house as the other fraternities and sororities did. There was definitely a, a double standard um, in every sense, all over town in, and at the university and in so many ways. Um, I, I want to talk about 
this football game. His first season, he couldn't pay, play varsity. His second season, he was on the varsity squad. He, they had a game against Simpson College, which was considered to be something of a scrimmage because Simpson College wasn't the the same caliber as Iowa State University. So this second game, he considered this second game to be the first real college game of his life. And he writes that in that extraordinary letter that he wrote the night before that game. Uh, tell me what was at stake with this game. Yeah, I mean, as you, as you mentioned, it was the first real college game of his life. And, and that was also because the first years as a freshman, you couldn't play varsity. So even though his team was brought in to be the stars in the next generation, they had to wait a year. Um, and so they waited that year. That first game that you mentioned wasn't really a, a competitive game. So then the next game was against the University of Minnesota. And the University of Minnesota was a well-known football team. And this was a big powerhouse team. And so it was a big game. And Jack was a star player. And, you know, unfortunately during the game, first he hurt his shoulder. And he couldn't come out because in those days, if you came out in the first half, you couldn't go back into the set until the second half. So he played through pain and he was known as a blocker. So he would make the holes for the quarterback or the other players to run through. That was his job. He could, he did score some touchdowns, but mostly he was known as a big blocker. In fact, he was so strong that he would train with one of the assistant coaches who played semi-professional football on the side because he was just as strong as him and could you know, go pound for pound with him on the line. And so at one point, Jack did what's called a rolling block. So you kind of go down and, and take someone with you. But when he hit the ground, he was trampled by several players. And the, that's the real question of, well, why was he trampled? What happened? Because that's not, it's not a normal thing. I mean, it is a very violent sport. Even in those days, you had very minimal equipment. You played both offense and defense, but you know, typically you weren't trampled. And in this case, it was trampled. His abdomen was, was injured. And so the question is, why was he targeted? And we certainly know that everybody knew that there was a high racial tension at that time. The Ku Klux Klan was rising in prominence. They were running a candidate for mayor in St. Paul. They had a, a float in the, the Minnesota University's parade. So, you know, the, the KKK and, and racist groups were on the rise and, and they were well known. So, you know, having a black man on the field certainly you know, brought attention to him. And then beyond his color of his skin, he was a star football player. I mean, he was very integral to that team. So there's always this question of was he targeted because of his race? And I, I think that's part of it. But I think it was also because he was a star athlete. So I think those factors both play together into what happened and why he was trampled. This letter that he wrote the night before that game that was immortalized on a plaque at Iowa State University that really is the thing that kept his story alive for so long. He wrote that letter because of segregation. He wrote that letter because he was alone in his hotel room because he wasn't allowed to eat with the rest of the team. Yeah, I mean, Jack had to stay at a separate hotel, the Curtis Hotel, and we know that because of the stationery uh, is what he wrote it on. He wrote it on the hotel stationery, that letter. And even his teammates, you know, kind of looked around at one point when they were eating and, and asked, where's Jack? I mean, why isn't Jack here with us? And in fact, you know, his best friend from high school um, they was named Johnny Bem, and Johnny and Jack would always room together. They would ride trains together. You know, they're best friends, and yet when they come to Minnesota, Jack can't stay with them. So that was certainly, you know, not shocking to them uh, because obviously they, they had lived in the 1920s, but right. they were used to Jack being with them. And, and now they come to Minnesota and Jack's ripped away from them and put into a separate hotel. It took 
several days for Jack to die of his injuries at the game. He was taken back to Ames and went to the hospital. And there, the students at Iowa State University mourned him. There was a, a large funeral on campus, on central campus. And, and there, uh, he was honored in his time after his death. And there was a collection taken up for his mother. I mentioned earlier that we believe that his mother had to mortgage her home um, to pay for his college. His wife, who was living in Ames and studying home economics, left school and went to live with Jack Trice's mother after Jack's death. I, I want to jump ahead that plaque that was put on campus because of, of the feeling of the students at the time when he died in the 1920s, that endured, stayed there, got a little dusty over time. In the 1970s, it, it was really rediscovered in, in many ways. And you mentioned earlier that there was an academic tutor who it caught his attention. He decided to do a little research about Jack Trice. And then there was an English class that did a deep dive. Tell me a about that discovery and the movement that grew out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the English teacher was, was Charles Son, and his friend was the academic tutor um, that had found this plaque about Jack and, and looked into it. And there had been another student named Tom who became an Iowa State journalism professor who had written a short article also on Jack, but it never went anywhere in the 1950s. And so there was some stuff at the library. There was a small Jack Trice collection, but the majority of that grew when the students decided they were going to do it, like you mentioned, a deep dive. And so they contacted the athletic director at the time, who was a teammate of Jack and recorded interviews. They actually sent letters and contacted people in his hometown of Hiram to really know how Jack was. And, and it's kind of funny because this is the time when the new Iowa State Stadium was being built. And they thought after all the research they did, they said, you know what, you know, let's try and you know get the stadium named after him. But even there was a black you know, student in the class and he's like, they're never going to name the stadium after a black kid. And so that Charles Son was sort of a hippie from the 1960s. He you know, was always sort of a revolutionary and they made a scrapbook, the Jack Trice scrapbook, which was a collection of all the newspaper articles and some of the interviews they had. Selling it for a dollar to to raise money for a Jack Trice scholarship and to create awareness of Jack Trice, and and it really caught on. And, and soon the students and the student government in particular took up the mantle of trying to get the stadium named for Jack, and they went all the way to the Board of Regents to try and get the stadium named for him. And uh, they failed. Over 70% of students on campus in a poll supported this. The administration did not support this idea. And um, they said that faculty did not support it, although the student newspaper checked into it and faculty hadn't been asked, or at least the majority of faculty hadn't been asked. And the people who had been asked, three out of four, said that they were in support of naming the stadium. Um, they were afraid that, that alumni of the university couldn't support this. Yeah, I mean, this the second half of the book really focuses on the fight to get the stadium named for Jack. And I think it's important to highlight that as well, besides, as I mentioned, his life being so important, but even the fight to get the stadium named after him, because it's almost taken for granted now that Iowa State has the stadium named for Jack Trice. He has, you know, symbolism all throughout the university and the athletic teams. And, and, and is, we'll be know, spending the next year marking the centennial of his death. 
Exactly. And so, you know, and he was and still is the only African-American to have a major college football stadium named after him. And in all places, Ames, Iowa, one wouldn't expect that. But it, it didn't come out so so easily that they were able to, to name the stadium for him. It took almost 25 years. And so, as you mentioned, first they went to the regents and the regents voted it down because they thought the alumni would not want a stadium named for an African-American or certainly just a single football player. They wanted to name it Cyclone Stadium. They wanted a very generic name to include everybody, not to single out one African-American student uh, who had sacrificed himself and, and died playing you know, football. And then again in the 1980s, the students tried again. And this is more of a hijinks era. They were having flyovers with banners. They put a big billboard outside of the town that said, Welcome to Ames home of Jack Trice Stadium, but of course it wasn't, but, you know, it is today. Um, so they did a lot of things. They even, you know, helped with a, uh, get a newspaper called Miss Don Call, who founded the Ragbri Ride. And yeah. he was a well-known satirical newspaper columnist, and he took up the fight naming things for Jack. And he would often write articles about, you know, why are we focusing on, you know, these other people from Notre Dame and all these other people when we have a hero among ourselves and, and we should be naming the stadium for Jack. And, so, you know, there was, it was a fight, and, and it was not until 1990s that they actually got the stadium named for Jack Trice. Jonathan, I mean, I, I think that the, there are so many takeaways from this, but what do you want people to take away from reading your book? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the life of Jack and what he represented, I think, is the most important thing, because for, for some reason that letter inspires people of all walks of life. You know, whether, as I mentioned, you're an athlete on the field or an athletic director or a coach or an executive or even just a, a person who, who feels that stories should be told of marginalized people, I think it's important to understand that these are, are people and Jack was a person. And I think for some reason his life touches upon people and his vulnerability touches upon people. Dr. Jonathan Gelber is the author of The Idealist, Jack Trice and the Battle for a Forgotten Football Legacy. I spoke with him in December of 2022. For the past year, Iowa State University has been honoring the life and legacy of Jack Trice. The commemoration culminates this week with a number of events, including lectures, the Jack Trice Legacy football game on Saturday, and on Sunday, which is the 100th anniversary of Trice's death, there will be a closing ceremony at noon on Central Campus at the Campanile, where Trice's posthumous degree will be awarded to family members. I will talk to one of those family members, George Trice, the founder of the Trice Legacy Foundation, in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. 
On October 5th, 1923, the night before the second college football game of his life, Jack Trice wrote, The honor of my race, family, and self are at stake. Everyone is expecting me to do big things. I will. Trice, the first black athlete at what was then Iowa State College, died of injuries sustained on the field in that game. He's also the first and still only black man to have a major university stadium named after him. And getting his name on the stadium at Iowa State University was the result of a 20-plus year campaign led by ISU students. Jack Trice grew up near Cleveland, Ohio, and in addition to being an athlete, he was also a husband and a student of animal husbandry. He aspired to use his education to help black farmers in the southern United States. Over the past year, the university has been remembering Jack Trice and honoring his legacy. This year of remembrance culminates with many events this week, including Trice 100, The Name, The Legacy, a lecture tomorrow night, October 5th at 7.30 p.m. at the Pikes at the Parks Library, given in part by George Trice of the Trice Legacy Foundation. And George Trice is with me now. He is a graduate of Iowa State University and related to Jack Trice. He is a first cousin twice removed. He's also a podcaster, one of the hosts of In the Sigh of the Storm, focused, of course, on cyclone sports. George, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on here today with you. Although... Jack Trice's family and many members of the campus community in Ames were heartbroken when he died in October of 1923. We know that this is a story that was nearly forgotten. When did you, as a member of the Trice family, when did you first learn about your cousin? Yeah, so it was kind of a long time in the making and kind of forgotten. And I didn't find out about Jack Trice and my my relation to him until I was eight years old. So 88 was when I found out. And that's when my grandfather, my uncle Nelson and my cousin Chester Jr. were all going out to Iowa to do the unveiling of the statue. I was eight years old, so I couldn't go because I had chicken pox. You know, that was the first time um, and really the last time I heard about Jack Trice until I was starting my college uh, dream. Wow. And I can imagine that it's a, it's a pretty big story to wrap your mind around at the age of eight. Do you remember what you thought about it? You know, honestly, I didn't think of anything, uh, you know, because they were there. I was home. And so I didn't really even fathom what was going on. I just knew, oh, my grandfather and family are going out to Iowa. And that's really, again, all I, all I really knew or all, all I really thought until the Jet Magazine was released. I had seen it a couple more times, but the Jet Magazine, my grandfather um, and my family was all in that article because they did a little spread on the events that took place at Iowa State. And that was when the statue was unveiled in 1988. The statue uh, shows Jack Trice. He's standing. He's holding this remarkable letter that he wrote the night before that football game in Minnesota. And that statue uh, was moved to the stadium when it was named for him in 1997. It's now back at its spot on campus because the stadium has changed. It moved back there in 2019. So let's um, let's fast forward from there to when you were getting ready to go to college, you got recruited to come to Iowa State University. And when you were visiting, you went to a basketball game where they put you up on the big screen and said that you were related to, to Jack Trice. What what was that experience like? So I, I want to take a step back and talk about you know how it was uh, revealed to me again and brought up to me again. 97 is when they actually, East, um, East Tech is where Jack went. 
And the Cleveland Plain Dealer actually had an article talking about the renaming of the stadium, uh, a trice, uh, a Cleveland native being honored at that, at, at that level. And so that's when I next heard about, about Jack. And so I went home, took that paper home, talked to my mom and said, hey, ma, you know, can you tell me about this? And this is when the article and the Jet magazine came out of, out of hiding and was, you know, covered in dust because uh, it had been almost, almost 12 years. And so that's when it came back out, and my mom actually told me the story, and I got a chance to read that. I hadn't planned on going anywhere except for the University of Michigan. I called into Iowa State and said, hey, I got this article. Um, I see that my, my grandfather and some of my other family was there back in 1988. Um, would, could you give me a call back? I would like to talk to somebody about you know Jack Trice and, and Iowa State. And I got a call back a couple of days later, and that's when they revealed to me I was a first cousin twice removed. And so um, I came in the year after. So 98 is when I came in. And so February of that year came for my visit. My mom and I came and I stayed with the football team. My mom was staying at the Memorial Union when they had a hotel there and sat in the game, was on the screen. And that was a that was a big experience. I was never on anything like that. And so my mom and I and, you know, Tom Hill, who was the vice president, student provost at the time, was was sitting with me. And the, the amazing thing about that game was coming there because of who I was, but one of the ushers that was there, and I, I never remember his name, and I have to, I have to get his name and, and find out who, who he was, but he walked up from the bottom near the basketball uh, floor and walked up and sat in the aisle next to me. And he talked to me about 45 minutes. I don't really even remember the game. <laughs> he played with Jack. Wow. And I just sat here and talking to this, this old gentleman. You learn so much from the elderly um, just because of their experience and that tribal knowledge that they have that gets lost, you know, in translation and gets lost when people pass on. Uh, but he was able to provide, you know, just his experience in playing with Jack. He wasn't one of his original teammates because Jack came with his coach from high school with five other players from East Tech. So this wasn't one of the original people that Jack knew. This was someone he met coming to Iowa State and to sit there and talk to that guy was just crazy to, you know, to find out more about that time, 1920s and, and what that era was like. And, you know, especially one black black guy on the team, you know, jumping off the, the, the train at the, you know, bus, the train depot and, you know, not knowing where you're really going. And it was just it was just awesome. Yeah. Wow. So you were you were 18 years old then. And this wasn't a story that you'd heard a lot about when you were growing up. And here you were, you know, you're launching your adult life. You want to play football. You want to go to school. How much of an impression did do you feel like you really absorbed this story this time around? Um, no, I, I still didn't. I still didn't fathom what this was. Um, you know, 18 years old. I was not as wise as Jack. Um, Jack, when you read his letters and the words he used, he was he was far ahead of his of his time. Um, you know, he had diff some different experiences in his life. That I think that shaped him uh, to make him look at things a lot differently. The hardships that he endured is something I will never, ever experience. You know, coming from down south, going to live with family in a, in a new area and then going to Cleveland even a little bit further from that, because Hiram, where he was at, is actually 45 minutes or so from Cleveland. And so. A lot of things that he experienced, I had never experienced and never will experience. And so I really didn't fathom it at that time. You know, I came, I visited with the football team and, you know, some of my best friends still to this day, uh, I met at that time and I'm 6'2", about 300 pounds when I played and um, they were 6'7", 370. Um, so 
um, I was not going out there. Um, I, I I knew I knew my limitations, and so it was just it was just great to but basically see these guys and to know again that it changed from when Jack was in school to now. But um, it was just a an experience to say, okay, this football stadium is named after my cousin. I'm coming to Iowa State. Um, this is where I'm going to be, and I have to basically um, you know live up to this name. But didn't really know what the name really was or really meant. Sure. That did that feel like a lot of pressure? It was a lot of pressure because you know you have to hold yourself to a higher standard because all eyes are on you. I was on the front of the paper like every year. Uh, people were emailing me like, "Hey, let's let me, let me take you to this party." Oh, hey, come hang out here. Or, "Hey, I saw you here. I saw you there." And it was just a lot of you know of that. Plus, I was working with athletics and doing. Uh, some some kind of tours for like young kids. I would walk them around the stadium, walk them around the Jack Trice statue and tell them about it. I did panels for incoming freshmen. So a lot of eyes were on me and a lot of people were looking at me. And so I just had to make sure that I just, you know, wasn't embarrassing myself, my family or the university at that time. It wasn't really about me knowing who I was or what I was at that time. It was just me just not embarrassing myself or others. Tell me when you feel like you really did understand what your cousin did and what he means to people. It was a, it was it was years later. I will I will say that I always knew that I had to do something different, and I actually left Iowa State and and not the right way. I thought I wanted to be a chef, and I still cook to this day. But I just left Iowa State and moved to California. Got accepted to Art Institute. Uh, their culinary program in Santa Monica, California, moved out there, stayed with my cousin in Compton and was trying to live. And so when you're not a resident of California, you do not qualify for any kind of school grants or federal money to go to school. So to pay for school and to pay for living, I could not afford it. During that time when I was trying to figure out that's where I wanted to be, my grandfather, who I'm named after and who was Jack's cousin, suffered a stroke. And this was back in 2001, 2002, 2001, 2000-ish. And I had to go back to Cleveland to help him with some things for a pet store that we owned um, from when my grandfather was, you know, 20 years old. And so I had to go back there and it gave me some time to think about really what was important to me. And I went back to Iowa knowing that there was a better place for me to be, knowing that I had, you know, name recognition. I had people that knew me um, and I could basically get by there um, until I figured out what I wanted to be. And then... It took me not getting a job um, and getting a promotion because I didn't have my degree. And I called the university and said, I don't care about my scholarship. I don't care about any of that. I just need to get back into school. I don't ever want um, it to be that I didn't have X, Y, or Z to get to that next level. I don't want to ever, ever have the experience of, well, you don't have a degree, so you don't, you don't qualify for this even though you've been doing it. And so that's when I went back to school, and that's when I actually had a greater understanding because at that time, I'm 21 years old, 22 years old, and now I'm understanding what Jack went through, what he saw why he, while he was there, and, and then again, to look at what he wanted to do afterwards because he tried to, he wanted to get his degree, and after that, he wanted to, um, you know, go back down south, teach ex-slaves how to share crop and make money doing what they had done for free. So he had a plan, and I didn't have that plan. And so that's kind of when it started to really, you know, re-up in my mind, but it really didn't take place until 2020 is when um, I started this foundation because of some things that were going on in the world that I felt um, 
his impact, his name, his legacy, it was time for it to be revealed and be out there. This story of, of this horrible game where Jack Trice was, was targeted and injured fatally is a story that gets told now again and again. This letter that he wrote, which really is such a remarkable letter that gives us just a little bit of, of insight into who this man really was and the determination that he had. And of course, that letter was written in isolation because of segregation. He couldn't be with the rest of the team. So he had that time to himself to reflect and to write. This whole year at Iowa State University, there's been a lot of remembrance. There's been some really lovely honors of Jack Trice. But I would love to hear from you, as you mentioned. I mean, you started you started this foundation in 2020 in response to a lot of things that were going on. And, and we all remember 2020. Tell me what you want people to know and feel about Jack Trice. I want people to know that he was a man ahead of his time um, to go out and face what he was facing Knowing that he couldn't ride the same train, he couldn't stay at the same dorm, he couldn't eat at the same places as his, as his white teammates, people need to realize that this this guy at this age knew what he wanted, knew what he, where he wanted to go, and that it wasn't just about sports. Iowa State does a great job of honoring Jack from the athletic standpoint, um, but one of the things that we have to understand is that he was a whole person. He wasn't just you know, an athlete. He was a student athlete. And because he was the epitome of a student athlete, it, he was out there doing animal husbandry. He was out there in a, in a field that, you know, probably wasn't, you know, normal for him, like a quote unquote, I'm using air quotes. But again, he was doing something different, one to teach and, and, and help others. And so that's where it's about. It's not about a stadium being named after him. It's not about a commemorative collection. It's about the other parts. And I want people to understand that representing Iowa State and going into that stadium, it's not just about, you know, the sports aspect, but it's about who he was. And when you walk in there and see his name, you see the Jack Trice Club, you see the new Breaking Barriers sculpture, you see Jack Trice Way as a, as a new street name. When you look at these things, these are the beginnings of honoring him for more than just his accolades on the field, but honoring him as a person. So my thing is that had Jack lived, what would we be talking about today? Hopefully we would be saying Jack Trice did this, just like George Washington Carver or Frederick Douglass or any of those people that came out of Iowa State. But he left Iowa State, and this is what he accomplished. But because he wasn't able to, we as people, we as humanity have to finish it for him. And we have to help others and bring others up because that's what his plan was. So not, not taking anything away from what he did on the field, but we just need to always look at the complete man. And because the words that he wrote about doing more in his part having his eyes low and facing forward, doing it for his family um, and his race and for himself, this is a complete person and we have to always look at it that way. So tell me what you're trying to do with the Trice Legacy Foundation. We want to help increase the diversity at our Iowa colleges and universities and start with the junior highs and high school students to help give them mentorship, give them financial power, to talk to them about the things that they can do that the, and show them the power that they have uh, beyond what they really see. 
And so everything we do goes back into the community in that way as we start our fourth year. And we've had to pivot because the story is so big and people know the story. But, you know, I, I talk about a story where I was at an Avis rental car a couple months ago in Des Moines and a black gentleman, a couple years older than me, he saw my last name, talked about, oh, there's a Trice name. I said, yeah, it's, that's my cousin. He didn't realize that Jack Trice was black. And so he didn't really know the story. And he's from Iowa, born and raised, 45 to 47 years old. And so really it's about getting Jack's name out there and letting people understand who he was. Because, again, they see the name on the stadium but don't know who he is or what he stood for. And that's what these 100-year anniversary events have been doing. And that's what the foundation and partnering with Iowa State and partnering with Iowa as a whole is accomplishing. George, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. George Trice is the founder of the Trice Legacy Foundation. He's also a graduate of Iowa State University. He is a podcaster. You can listen to his Cyclone Sports podcast in the sigh of the storm. And he is also a cousin of Jack Trice. He will be at the events on Iowa State University campus this weekend, the game on Saturday, and closing ceremony on Sunday at noon on Central Campus, where the university will present a posthumous degree for Jack Trice to his family members. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.